0: Hey Corey, hey man, what's up? Not much, you? Dude, I'm super excited.
1: Me too. So normally this is a spot where we crack a joke. You know, I might say something about how ugly you are, or I might say like
0: how stupid you are and how your nose is crooked.
1: Yeah. Not today though. In today's episode will deal with some dark themes: uh, manslaughter, sexual assault, kidnapping. So viewer discretion is advised. This is Jody Plochet's Second Story. Don't worry about the viewer
0: discretion. Just watch and listen to it.
1: Welcome back to Second Story, everybody. I'm Josh Zabalski. With me, as always, is Corey Lecky. Corey, how are things? Good, man. Great, actually. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, joining us today, we've got a very special guest. Uh, He is an author. He is a uh, sexual assault assault counselor. He's worked in violence prevention for nearly 30 years. Um, You may recognize him. He's been on CNN, ABC, uh, Montel Williams Show, Maury Povich, Oprah, uh, ESPN. I might have missed a few. Uh, His name is Jody Ploche. Jody, welcome to Second Story. Thanks for having me. Took me a lot to work on that. You have quite a biography. Uh, you've you've done a lot. You've um, made quite an impact on the world. And you've been in a lot of forms of medium. Um, so you wrote a book. Uh, it's also available as an audio book. It's, I got to say right off the top, it is, at times, it's a very difficult read, but it is absolutely phenomenal. And I think it's a really important book that's got a really important message behind it um so in the book you talk about how long it is that you've been writing it um so do you, do you want to share a little bit of insight before we get into your second story a little bit uh how long did it actually take you to write your book
2: oh uh like i said i started writing it in 2000 no no 1993 <clears throat> in in the i guess the acknowledgments i say you know i just gotten a b in my writing composition class so that's why i was like hey you know what it's time to go write this book and i would go into the computer lab with the old hard three and a half inch floppy disk. You know, that's what I I did it on. And I started writing it and I got 27,000 words. And I realized like, okay, I'm not done. I I have to go back home. I was living in Irving, Texas. I was there for two years. I was like, I got to go back home because the people who are subjects in this book, Mike Burnett, um, who was a sheriff deputy who helped rescue me. You know, my dad even was back in Baton Rouge. So I was like, I think I, I need to move back home to finish writing this book. Well, I moved back home. I re-enrolled in LSU and put the book on the back burner. And it wasn't until 2012, I decided, okay, I'm going to just start from scratch and start over. And I actually have what's called, what I call it, the lost chapter, a chapter that's not in my book, that is an excellent chapter that should be in it. So if I republish, let's say if ever I get a documentary about the book, I might republish. I might include that, excuse me, lost chapter in it. But in 17, early 2017, a friend of mine was like, Hey, uh, you know, my friend knows this person knows this person and we can meet. And if you want to get the book together. So we sat down at Starbucks, we had a little meeting and I ended up hiring this book writing company, uh, out of Texas and we got to work. Well, they, what they would do is they would interview me and we would talk like once a week for like two hours. And we did this for several months. And that would have started like in February or March and September, they send me like the rough first draft of the book. And I I didn't want to say I didn't like it because everything that was sent in there made it into the final copy of the book, but it just didn't tell the story right. So what I did was I went back and I dug through the old floppy disk from 1993 and I pulled up those 27,000 words. And what we did is we kind of combined the two to where if you look at the The introduction in like the first chapter was them. The next, you know, nine, 10 chapters is me and the final chapters are them. And then the last three chapters are me.
1: The the reason I wanted to lead with that question is because, you know, I've written one book and I, I take a lot of heat because it took me 12 years to write it. And uh, I wanted to troll you a little bit that it took you longer than 12 years. So I'm not the only person who took more than a decade to, to write a book. Somebody actually said that once. They're like, has anyone ever taken that long to write a book? And I'm like, I don't really know. But now we do know. that. I think that but, was me uh, that said that, wasn't it? Yeah, probably, probably was you.
2: <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad I waited because if I would have tried to, to publish it, you know, let's say in 1993, I had yet to graduate from college. I had yet to join Men Against Violence. I had yet to go to Pennsylvania and work as a sexual assault crisis counselor and a uh, community educator doing public safety uh, education programs. So I was able to include a lot of those important messages from the sexual assault counseling to the education uh, into the book. So for anybody who is a parent. Um, I, I highly recommend, uh, imagine me highly recommending my own book, but I will say this, um, the, when I did the interview for the local paper, the guy asked me, he said, what took you so long? Why did you wait so long to write your book? And I said, well, like my dad that night at the airport, I knew I only had one shot to get it right. And so it came out better than I had hoped for.
1: Yeah. It's honestly, it's, it was worth the wait. Um, so let's talk about, the second story. That is the name of the show. And what we try to do here is try to talk to people who have gone through a major change or a major event in their life that sent them down a different path. You know, I feel like for you, the 27,000 words that you would have written in 1993, a lot of that would have really been your first part of the story and sort of what came after it is really your second story. Um, but would you like to share for people? You've kind of given little tidbits here and there, but what exactly is your story? Uh and uh, just for our audience that doesn't happen to recognize you or recognize the name. So we'll go. All right, so I'm telling the first story.
2: All right. So when I was in fifth grade, I got a flyer to take karate. And I took that flyer and I threw it in the trash because I was already playing softball, basketball, football and soccer. So I didn't really you know, think twice about taking karate. Well, my little brother wasn't in any of those sports. So my mother thought it would be a good idea to put him in it. And when she enrolled him, she enrolled my older brother and me and We ended up taking karate from a guy named Jeff Doucette. Jeff Doucette was a child molester and a groomer, and he took advantage of his position to take advantage of me. And I I would say uh, in the spring of 83, he started to groom me and my family. He eventually started to sexually abuse me um, in April orally. Then in May, you know, you can use your imagination the next step. And that went on until eventually he kidnapped me because he owed people money. Um, actually, I owed a guy that my dad introduced him to because Jeff had came up with this idea to sell this LSU uh, bandana. And the guy made a down payment. and Jeff spent the money and, and didn't buy the bandana. So the guy was coming for his money. And so Jeff left town and he had written some bad checks around town. And since I had been his love interest for the past year, he took me with him. That's the beginning of the first story. The real first story is he eventually was caught. I was flown back to that oh, Well, I flew back to New Orleans um, from Los Angeles, and that's where my- he had dyed my hair black. And two weeks later, police officers flew out to California to extradite him back to Baton Rouge. Well, when they did, my dad he used to work at this uh, television station. He was a cameraman, and at the time, he was a salesman and he would entertain clients at this place called the cotton club, which is less than a half a mile from where the studios for this new station was. And he was on their bowling team. He was friends with everybody. And so one the program director, his name was Bob Shadel. He said, Hey Gary, when are you bringing your boy back? Talking about Jeff. And my dad said, I think he's back already, but if you know, if he was, they wouldn't tell me, or if he wasn't, they wouldn't tell me. Bob got up, went over to the payphone, called the news station and said, no, he'll be back at about nine o'clock tonight. So with that information, my father drove out to False River. He didn't make it all the way to the camp where we were at. I had lied and said Jeff hadn't touched me up until the hospital report came back. Then I couldn't deny it anymore. So now my father, who had been separated from my mother since the summer, his son's been kidnapped, He's missing for 10 days, and now you find out that the man that you once, you know, uh, literally gave the shirt off your back literally let him come to your home you welcomed him took him to your parents for family dinner has now been screwing your kid for the last you know half a year uh to almost a year um that's not your everyday average bad news my dad decided he was gonna he told me he said one of us was gonna die that night or both of us was gonna die that night and so my dad trying you know with the the I don't give a shit attitude as far as like whether I live or die, but this, you know, he ain't going to be breathe, breathing the same air as me and my kid. He went to the airport in front of the television camera. Cause the, the TV station had been out, went out there and in front of the TV camera, he turned and shot and killed my karate instructor. And then eventually he pled no contest to manslaughter. Is that the, the tweet you saw? Cause I, I did an experiment the other day on X I uh, I saw manslaughter was trending, and so my dad pled no contest to manslaughter. So I just typed in, for those who think my father, Gary Ploche, you got to put that because that you know, signals the... And I said, who thinks he was found not guilty by a jury of his peers, that's not true. He pled no contest to manslaughter. And that, that tweet got over 750,000 views.
1: So yeah, I did see that tweet. I would actually known your story for, for quite a long time, just from... Uh my my own father was kind of a news junkie back in the day. So I grew up I was born around the time of the Challenger explosion. And uh as TV sort of evolved, my dad became kind of a news junkie and he actually passed that on to me. I originally went to school to be a journalist. So I was pretty familiar with your story uh before that, but I did see that tweet and that was something I actually was not a hundred percent aware of, so that kind of caught me by surprise too. Um but obviously like it it probably Changed a lot of people's perception of how the story actually played, because um, I think that was kind of a, a misconception that was pretty widespread.
2: Did you happen to see any of the negative comments that people were putting? I was just, I would just, I would just retweet them. I'm like, yeah, I saw. That. There's, no, there's, there's nothing you can say to me that's going to make me go. ooh. I just started just retweeting them. Uh, I thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, and, and to finish up the first story, as um, my dad eventually got probation, he didn't go to jail. He got away with it. He got probation and community service, which according to his probation officer, he was his favorite, uh, you know, probation person. And eventually, you know, his I mean, our lives went back to pretty much normal.
0: I think it's amazing how you've kind of dealt with it and sort of your attitude around it and being able to talk so cavalierly about this. Um, you, you actually said in your book, um, a bad year doesn't make a bad life. Do you want to talk a bit about that?
2: All right, so if you just take the the time from nineteen eighty three to eighty four, when I had this you know it's a pretty bad year, but if you look at like the things that have happened that happened in that year, for example, uh, I started sixth grade, um, you know, my best friend from middle school, Brian Vandergriff, um, you know, we st- still are great friends today. So I mean, if if I had to take eighty three and eighty four out of my life just to get rid of Jeff, then I got to get rid of him. And then if you look at all of my middle school friends, I mentioned. Uh, Derek Mallet, my friend Dmac, um, yeah, he was a ball boy at LSU, and he just took it upon himself to get me an autograph program, um, just because we were friends. So I got to, I got to take all of that away as well. So yeah, I, I'm willing to overlook, you know, the few, and I say a bad year. It was just uh, a bad 20 minutes for a year, you know, or a bad 30 minutes for a year.
1: I I had a moment the other day when you were posting all those retweets on Twitter of that like the terrible stuff that people were saying to you. Like, man, whew, this guy's got thick skin. And then I thought about that comment in my head. And I'm like, it's a really stupid comment on my part to have because obviously you have thick skin, having gone around for you know 30 years doing be, what you it'll do. It'll be 40. Yeah, oh, there yeah, you go. Know, yeah,
2: doing yeah. what I do. Yeah,
1: yeah, doing what you do. Like, it's it's clear. I felt kind of silly having that comment in my head, but. Your, your comments there to your friends and to, to trolling people online, stuff like that, brings me to a question I had actually. They, so, in your book, you talk about how um, a lot of people would say that you were the funniest person they knew or you could always make your friends laugh and things like that. Um, and that obviously comes across in this interview as well and on Twitter and stuff like that. But when you were sort of uh, as a kid and making jokes and stuff like that, after everything that happened with Jeff, was a lot of your humor. Like, was it self-deprecating? Was it stuff where you'd kind of make fun of your situation or was it like more, more clean style of humor? I think I kind of know the answer, but I'm just curious. I, I don't think there's
2: any clean style of my humor at all, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, it's just, you know, I mean, I don't want to say I, I have this philosophy in life, but I saw a quote one time that said, don't take life too seriously because you're never going to make it out alive. And that mm-hmm. that's kind of how I feel about it. You know, we're, you know. Uh, we're not here for a long time, but we're here for a good time or whatever that stupid song is. But you know what I'm saying? So, I mean, why would I, I let you know an event that happened when I was 10 years old drag me down for the rest of my, my life? Now, when I was in college and in, in high school and college, I didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't do any drugs. And part of it was because I, if I was at a bar in college drinking and being like a college person, people were going to look at me and be like, oh, he's coping. He's trying to get over what happened to him when he was a child. Um, so until I was 25, I don't think I really drank heavily at all. Now I drink every night I take after daddy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you, uh, that kind of leads to my follow-up question. Do you think that at the time, like uh, I'll use me as an example. So when my father passed away, I was 25, and I used humor as a way to cope. So my, my father died of brain cancer. I would make jokes about cancer and stuff like that. And it was just a coping mechanism. It was something where I could kind of, if it gave me like a little bit of control over the situation, like I could kind of make fun of cancer. I wasn't making fun of my father. I was making fun of cancer. And people would think it was a little bit offside or inappropriate, but it was just something that, that made me feel like i had a little bit of control is that something like was humor a coping mechanism to you or are you just a funny guy
2: i i think i was funny my my dad was really funny and i kind of got his personality his sense of humor and um like for example uh i guess humor is a way of also helping cope like one time we were in a backyard and this was you know probably less than a year after the shooting and daddy was cooking some hamburgers or something and he was lighting the, the pit and back at the time he was putting charcoal on the pit you know And he lit a match and it looked up and he goes, you want to see? Well, before he lit the match, he goes, you want to see Jeff? I'm like, no. He goes, well, and he lit that match and insinuating like, oh, he's in hell. You know, so I mean, that that was a kind of a a coping mechanism in a way. But again, my dad was funny before and after the shooting. And, you know, I think I was
0: funny before and after the shooting as well. This episode is brought to you by Bad Workwear North America. BAD is a fashion-forward workwear brand from Australia with a wide selection of workwear for men and women that is not only durable and functional, but stylish and modern as well. With items like slim-fit work pants, waterproof hoodies, and a robust women's lineup, you're sure to find something you'll love. They offer free returns and exchanges on all orders. And listeners of this show, you can use the code SECONDSTORY at checkout to get 10% off your first order at badnorthamerica.com. Once again, use the code SECONDSTORY at badnorthamerica.com and treat yourself to some new gear. What was your relationship like with your father? Like, I know you talk a lot about it in your book, just, um, you know, uh, that him and your mother separated due to his alcoholism and and things like that. But uh, what was your relationship with him kind of through all those stages?
2: All right. So before I started taking karate, I was daddy's boy. Like, I was daddy's boy. My older brother, Bubba, was mommy's boy. And so me and daddy actually slept in the bed together in the current room I'm staying in now. And my brother would sleep with my mother in the current room she actually stays in now. And so, I mean, but that's, I mean, I was always daddy's boy. And then I also played sports, and he was our coaches in every sport that we took. So, I mean, he was a, he was an involved father. Um, you know, he was a great father, maybe not the best husband, but I wasn't married to him, so I don't give a shit. Um, but as far as a father, he's better than the father that people see in the video. Right. I wish I had his patience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was just as laid back as could be. He didn't, he, I mean, he, again, he was a very good father, a very good guy. I mean, you know, he'd buy, you know, rounds of drinks for everybody because he was an entertainer. I never, I never tried to pick sides between my parents. It's like that's between them and, you know, you can go live in Biloxi and daddy can stay here. And, You know, I'm not picking sides. And and they separated in 84, 83. They got back together after the shooting because part of my dad's probation was he couldn't drink. And my mother said, if he doesn't drink, then I don't have a problem with it. And once he completed his probation, he started drinking again. And so that's when she's like, all right, I'm out. So she went to Biloxi.
0: And what about after, like after he shot Jeff was, how did that relationship? Okay. So Jeff,
2: I want to say, put a a wedge between me and daddy because and it wasn't, it wasn't that I was mad at daddy. It was just that if I like, cause when my parents separated, daddy would have us every other weekend. And so we'd go out to our camp on, on the false river, the lake. And if it got back to Jeff, that I rode to the store with my dad, Jeff would get pissed off at me and throw a guilt. Oh, you what you love him? Why are you riding What you did? You love him more than me. And, and so as a defense mechanism for myself, I had to keep my distance from daddy. So I didn't have really much to do with my father. But it wasn't because I didn't care about my father. It was just I didn't want Jeff to find out about and get pissed off at me to make me feel bad. Um, When Daddy shot Jeff, I I wasn't as mad at Jeff as I was hurt that Jeff, who as an eleven year old kid, um, didn't like what he did to me. But I didn't hate him, and you know, and most of the time I was around Jeff, it was a fun time. So I was upset that this person that I'd hung out with every day for the past year was dead. But right. probably the summer of 84, and I, I think I mentioned this in the book, me and my dad were, and this a group of us, but me and my dad were up front. We were walking to the neighborhood pool, which is two blocks up the road. And I said to daddy, I said, look, I said, I, you know, I, I know why you did what you did. And I understand why you did what you did. And I'm not mad at you. I just want you to know that. And I think that meant a lot to him. Um, but then, I mean, after that, we got along just like nothing ever happened. So it would. It, it, I, I wish I could have filmed it or something because you really wouldn't believe just how normal our lives went back to being.
0: Just like fairly instantly, eh? Like w- like within a very short amount of time.
2: Yeah, that summer because I started playing baseball again, and you know he would come out to the baseball parks and watch the games, and you know again going back to the friends that I made at, at that uh, summer. So no, it, it, we really just. Never had a strained relationship. Someone, I so because I I mentioned that I was upset with Jeff. Some people will say, "Oh, he was an ungrateful bastard kid." I'm like, I'm gonna tell you right now, if my dad was alive and you said that in front of him about me, you'd have some issues, you know, because my dad wouldn't put up with it. You know, if he, if someone would have called me an ungrateful kid to my father, my father knows how I was. My father knows, I, and again. Is it wrong that I say I don't advise parents to go murder somebody? No, that's not wrong. And I tell people, Daddy got a mulligan. He got lucky. Mm-hmm. You know, he got off. You're not going to get off if you do it. Daddy did, you know. So, I mean, look at Cain Velasquez. I mean, let's let's hopefully he gets credit for time served and doesn't do any yeah. more time. But, you know, people, you know, they, I mean, it was the first. I mean, it was like 1984. and and then like the judge said, most sane people don't go shooting around shooting somebody 10 feet in front of a television camera. So that just goes to show you what state my father was in. But yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we we had a very good relationship.
1: I don't think we've mentioned this yet, or I haven't mentioned it. The name of your book is why Gary, why? And that is actually what the, I forget the police officer's name, but that's what the police officer shouted after your father had shot Jeff on, on like in front of the TV cameras. He, Yelled that and he kind of shields uh, your dad away from in case somebody tried to, to shoot him as well. Right.
2: Uh, all right. So the officers that yelled, he actually said, why, Gary, Gary, why? But I named yeah, the right. book, why, Gary, why? Because that's what people remember. The police officers that shielded my father was Mike Burnett. That was someone my dad went to middle school and high school with. They weren't like really good friends, but they were acquaintances. They'd see each other out. And ironically enough, before my mother knew my dad, she dated Mike Burnett for nine months. So they were friends. So Mike Burnett was friends with my mother separately, then with my dad. But they all knew. So if my dad would run into Mike Burnett at the Cotton Club, he would go to the payphone. And he'd call my mom, Hey, get, hey, look who I got here! And he'd put him on the phone. And we do that now with cell phones and stuff. And so you know, Mike would say, Hey, but it, my dad might see him at a LSU football game. But he, Mike Burnett, never came over for barbecues and that kind of thing. I mean, they they knew each other and were friends. I mean, to this day, I see Mike Burnett at Twin Peaks, and uh, I saw him walking through a parking lot not too long ago. So I mean. Uh, but Mike don't come to the house. So they were friends. Well, Bud was the other police officer. And when Mike shielded my dad, Bud was reaching for his gun. Uh, Bud terrible. told me a couple of years ago, he's like, I would have shot your dad. He said, if Mike wasn't a uh, blocked your dad, he goes, if that television camera wasn't there. He goes, he goes, if you watch, I'll walk over and he goes, I put that gun in your dad's head. And you can see him. He puts the gun in my dad's head. He's mm-hmm. like, You son of a bitch. And then he turns around, and he looks at Jeff, and he's just like, God ah, damn. So Hmm. Bud told me to but I'll tell you a, a funny story. So, Bud's son went to high school with my younger brother and sister. We all went to the same high school, and so my dad would go to football games. Well, Bud didn't like my dad. Okay, Bud, I, and I wouldn't probably like my dad either if he shot the guy I was standing next to. And so, my dad, you know, my dad wasn't thinking nothing of him. my dad's just being, you know, the guy he was. He sees Bud, and he waves to him, and he goes like that, and but it's like
0: <laughs> oh my god
2: so a couple of years ago i'm sitting in twin peaks and who comes walking in the door shaquille o'neal so i'm oh, like wow. so i called my sister i'm like your favorite person just walked into twin peaks she's like we just ordered food see went to go pick it up i can't come up there i was like Shaq just go walked in here she goes send him a book so i walked out to my car i got a book i signed it well my friend Derek Mallet, the one DMAC, the one that I told you about who got me to autograph uh, LSU program and was a ball boy for LSU. Well, his dad was like an associate athletic director at LSU. That's how he's able to be a ball boy. Well, he's like Shaq's go to guy. Like if Shaq's DJing, my boy DMAC is with Shaq. When Shaq graduated from college and flew to Vancouver, was it the Grizzlies or maybe Toronto? DMAC was on a private plane with him. I mean, so my sister was in Vegas a year ago. They went and saw Shaq, they ran into DMAC. So, I mean, uh, so I'm like, I, right, I said, uh, to Shaq, forever LSU, P.S. I mentioned Mac on page 88. Well, I sent it over to him, and I see this guy with him. He's doing this. He's looking for me. And I, and I wave, <laughs> and he waves me over. It was Sean Conner, Bud's son. Shaq is like really good friends because Bud's a police officer and Shaq has a, you know, the law enforcement background and that's Weird. Mike and Bud were kind of like the guys that he paired up with. And so he paired up with, so he's like really good friends with his name, Sean Connor, Bud's son. Well, <laughs> I was like, well, I'll be damned. What are the odds that I send one of the most famous person on a planet, a copy of my book about my father shooting someone. And he's telling Shaq or no, and the guy he's having dinner with is the son of the Man who was standing next to Jeff with blood splatter in his face.
1: Um, so, you talked a little bit about, well, talk quite a bit about um, sort of the wedge that uh, Jeff had put between you and your father. Um, and I think a lot of people would probably hear your story and be like, I don't really understand how he could think that like Jeff was a fun guy to hang out with. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what your relationship was like with Jeff prior to, to everything that happened with your father? All right. So uh, before things went sour, before basically Jeff was got preoccupied
2: with the money he owed and the bad checks that he had written, um, Jeff would take us to karate tournaments out of town. We went to Houston. Once we finished with the karate tournament, or no, the night before, once we got to Houston, we, we went to the Galleria and we went ice skating. The next day we went to the karate tournament. That Sunday we went to Astroworld. And, you know, you're in Fifth, sixth grade, and you're going to Astro World and you're coming back. You know, you're getting home at 10 o'clock at night. I mean, you're able to stay up and then you got to go to school the next morning, but you got to tell all your friends that you went to Astro World. And that's, you know, for a fifth grader, that's fun. And you had that little thing with the water, but you couldn't hold it because it would fall through your hand that you bought at the gift shop. And uh, we would go to the mall, we'd go to the arcade. I mean, we would go to the movies. I, I'll tell y'all something funny. And I, I actually meant to put this in my book, but I forgot to put it in my book, is that me and Jeff, have you ever seen the movie uh, Sudden Impact with Clint Eastwood yeah. where he's Dirty yep, Harry? Yep. Go ahead, make my day. Make
1: my day. Yeah, it's a sequel, I, isn't it? The no, it's, they, they had
2: several Dirty Harry yeah. movies. Well, the that movie is about a woman and her sister who are gang raped. And the sister, one of the sisters gets kind of like, in a catatonic state where she's in a mental hospital. Well, the other sister who was able to function ran into one of the people. And so she went around and was murdering everyone that gang raped them. So she was killing all the people who were gang raping. And I'm like, what are the odds that me and Jeff went and saw that movie three times about someone taking revenge about a rape?
0: Yeah that's, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, that's, <laughs> that's pretty wild. Crazy. Wow. But yeah. no,
2: we would go to the movies all the time. We'd go to the ball all the time. I mean, he was fun to be around.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's, I think that's something that people don't really understand when it comes to things like sexual assault is that it is, it is possible that, you know, you, you can have a relationship like that with somebody who's, who's doing something like that. And that obviously you mentioned it created a wedge between you and your father. Um, a lot of people I'm sure ask you like, like why you didn't tell anyone and you go through it in pretty great detail in the book, but Um, maybe just for our audience who haven't read your book, talk a little bit about, you know, why you weren't able to, to discuss it with your parents and kind of tell people what was actually happening to you.
2: Well, to make it, to, to give you a simple answer is uh, I knew my dad would kill him.
1: Um,
2: but that's also something that as a 10 year old and 11 year old, you know, I mean, you don't have the skills to, to say, Oh, mommy, just so you know, Jeff's been, performing oral sex on me for the last, you know, six months or, you know, even when it first started, oh, Jeff, you know, because the, the way the grooming works is they gradually get you. So they test your boundaries. And if that's if at one point, if like, so with Jeff, I was driving the car, he was working a stick shift and the, the pedals and he put his hand in my lap and he started kind of rubbing me. Well, if I'd have been like, Jeff, what the hell are you doing? You know, Jeff would have never tried anything on me. So that's why it's important. And I don't I don't subscribe to this anymore. Like I said, I was in Victim Services Center and we would go into elementary schools and we do keep in touch safe and healthy. And we would teach the kids the safety rules. No, go and tell. And I'll tell the story about the little kid here next for your audience. Maybe it'll help them go get the book. But so you, you tell them to say no if they're ever secret touch. That's kind of what we give the inappropriate sexual touch you want to say no you want to go you want to get away from that person and you want to tell a grown up someone you know uh, you know and trust and so uh but to put that on the kid is kind of the parents need to be more aware of who their kids are with but it doesn't hurt to still teach them the safety rules but you know that is just a small little fraction uh, fraction of what the kids need to know so for those who haven't read the book there was a, a situation where in 2002, if you ever see the movie, uh, help me out here with the, uh, sexual abuse in Boston, uh, the, the, the one picture, picture of the year, it was, uh, spotlight spotlight. Okay. Yeah. So in 2002, when all that was going down, when all these sex abuse cases with the clergy and the priests and where I went to my boss and I said, look, I want to do something. I want to, you know, use my story to kind of help raise awareness. So I called a friend of mine, Art Harris, that worked at CNN, and I was like, hey, you want to do a story? My boss said it was okay. So they flew up from Atlanta, and at the time, uh, they were filming me do a presentation. I wish I knew how we could link it. I, I think Art had put it up for a while, but I don't think it's still up. But um, So we're do, they're filming me doing a presentation to a second grade c- class, Brook Elementary in Royersford, Pennsylvania, and they had the producer, the sound guy, the uh correspondent the guidance counselor teacher and i mean just the principal we're all in this room so i'm going through the the safety rules and i, I get to the part to where i talk about secret touching and i'm like you know secret touching is when a grown-up touch a child's private parts for no reason this little kid's hand goes up second grade's hand goes up I'm, normally i wouldn't have called on him but i felt pressure because i was being filmed recorded i was going to be put on tv and I made the mistake of saying, okay, what, kid? And he goes,
1: sometimes you can secret touch yourself. <laughs> That's in the, yeah, I remember that. For I was ago. like,
2: kid, I'm 30 and single. You've got to tell me about that. But uh, <laughs> I
1: was like, well, if you're touching yourself, then it's not
2: a secret. So I just kind of rolled with the punch. But uh I thought that was kind of funny when he just I'm like, why would you say that, you little kid? Who's probably now 35 and divorced, but
1: uh, probably gets razzed for it by his buddies. Oh yeah,
2: remember yeah. that time you had yeah, yeah. whacking off in front of the, the presenter?
1: Yeah, the entire world, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> so it's kind of a game of manipulation, right? Like, um uh, almost like a long game. Like it seems like they, they gain your trust.
2: Okay. So it is a long game. Okay. Cause a pedophile doesn't war child molester doesn't want to invest several months into uh, getting the, the trust, the, the grooming. Uh, they don't want to spend all that for it to go away. So they're trying to build a relationship. And I, I saw this or read this somewhere recently. And I was like, well, I should have put that in the book too, is that, A pedophile's biggest problem is when the child gets too old. They age out. It's what's called aging out. So pedophiles like prepubescent children. Once they start getting those secondary sexual characteristics, hair under their arms, hair everywhere, pedophiles no longer interested. But they got to somehow nicely tell the 13-year-old kid that they've been with for the last two years, sorry, but I'm moving on to your little brother or someone who's younger than you. So that's kind of like their biggest issue, but yeah, they're in it for the long haul. They want, and uh, most people don't tell, cause it's usually someone they know, someone they care about, uh, a family member, uncle Paul, you know, it could be anybody. And so it's usually someone that at that point, so it, you hear, Oh, I'm going to kill your puppy. You hear that threat, but that's usually not the threat. The, th- the threat is, the child's affection the 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 fact that you know i mean i've known people who were molested by their uncles or uh you know neighbor that cared about the uncle and neighbor before they molested them so they had a hard time processing what happened with them because they wanted to hate them but they really didn't hate them and you know so it, it's it's a weird dynamic but it's a
1: reality and uh like when w- with the manipulation they're not just manipul- manipulating their victim they tend to manipulate the other people around them too like you talk in the book about how jeff didn't just manipulate you as your, no, your whole like, family
2: so jeff would tell my parents oh well, y'all uh y'all don't want to go hang out with so-and-so's parents because they're swingers and if they invite you over they're going to try to you know have a little swinger party with you so they're like i ain't going over there well then they go he go tell that kid's parents well you don't want to go with gary and june because gary's alcoholic and you know he's sloppy drunk and so they're like well i don't want to be around that drunk bastard so he would play the parents off so they never compared notes And so that's just another way of isolating himself to where the other parents don't compare notes, so they can't put two and two together. You know, Jeff, I was his main focus, but I mean, I suspect there were probably others that, you know, I know for a fact that there was one other, but he had aged out. He'd moved on from him to me. Um, But I, I, I suspect that I wasn't the only one.
1: i've uh i'll go ahead and ask this i've read that uh you know where people will say i think they've said it specifically about your story is that something like what specifically happened to you couldn't happen today because of technology and Jeff wouldn't be able to uh manipulate people and kind of separate things. I completely disagree with it i would I'd be curious in your as to your take as to why that's not true and why I think personally the opposite is true it's actually easier for people to groom kids nowadays because of technology.
2: All right, so I had a meeting a couple of years ago, because um, the ultimate goal is to turn the book into a docu series and a, a, a movie, a feature film. I'd love to go to. I, I wanted to do like the premiere at the Hollywood Bowl because that would be a great venue to premiere a movie. But I mean, that is the ultimate goal. And I told him in the meeting, I said, "Look, I said when it comes to the movie, okay, like the documentary, you got to be straight up. You got to tell like it happened." I was like, "But the movie," I said, "If you want to set it in." 2000 at like the time it was 19 if you want to set it in 2019 where we're showing how they're sending kids you know inappropriate messages on phones they got a, a Dropbox. then if you want to use modern technology to show how they're doing it now it's like uh, my favorite comedian jim norton he said you know back you know 30 years ago if you wanted to send a dick pic you had to <laughs> take a polaroid <laughs> get in your car go to knock on the door and go here, you know? So, you know, and Jeff never, I, I will say this, Jeff never like showed me porn or nothing like that, but that is a tactic that some pedophiles use. I'll let them, you know, look at dirty pictures. I, I think Jim Clementi, the former FBI pro- profile writer on criminal minds, he said it's the three D's drinking, driving and dirty pictures. I think were the three that I mentioned in the book. And yeah. I mean, I got that from him. He's the one that told it to me. Um, but By the time they get the kid, they have like, I want to say evidence, like they can hold stuff over. Like if, well, if you tell what I'm doing to you, I'll tell that you've, you know, smoked a cigarette. So that again, at nine, 10 years old, it keeps the child quiet.
0: You talk a little bit about this in the book as well, just about what a good friend he was to you. But then also there was a bit of fear in there that you were a little bit afraid of him. And was it things like that? Was he holding things over you or was it like a fear, uh, Because he's an adult male.
2: It was because he was holding things over me. Like, you know, he was wanting to control, have that control over me. And whenever he felt like he had to do it, it's kind of of like when a, a football coach cuts a player for fumbling, even though he, you know, wasn't even a good player, it was just a backup, just send a message to, you know, to the team like, hey, I'm not putting up with this. So whenever he felt like, you know, he had to flex his power. And, you know, not to let me make decisions for myself because I was going to do what he I think it's called coercive control. And Jeff had that over me as well. Even if he wasn't around, even when I was with my father at Falls River, I wouldn't go ride with my father to the store because I was afraid it would get back to Jeff.
1: You uh, you mentioned earlier that one of the big fears that you had when when everything was going on, one of the reasons you didn't tell your father, about what was happening to you is you knew he would you knew that he would kill Jeff. And he, in the book, you talk about how he had actually said that to people, not about Jeff specifically, but he said, if anybody ever fooled with his kid, that he'd kill them. And that was one of the reasons that you didn't tell him is because you didn't want to be what you felt responsible for somebody else dying. Um, Now you kind of contrast that with what your mom said to you after everything had happened. Like your mom was instrumental in your recovery. And you talk about that in the book that she was pivotal in you being able to recover because when they would come into the room and tell you things that happened to you, um, she, she didn't really have a reaction to it or like a negative reaction to it. Do you think like if, if your mom had been different when it came to your recovery, if her reactions to what had happened to you had been different, do you think your recovery would have been different? 100%. I think the best thing that ever happened was Mike Burnett with the sheriff's department told
2: my mother, look, you can't react negatively he's like you got to be calm he said jody probably knows more about sex than you do he was like and if you react negatively it's going to shut him up it's going to shut him down and you don't need that and so by her being calm and i that's why i put that in the book i wanted i want that message to get out there that a parent needs to remain calm because sometimes and in that cnn video that i was telling you about with the little kid mike barnett even says sometimes the parent's reaction is worse than the actual act itself because it freaks the child out and I mean, and I've seen it with my own hands. I mean, let's just say someone close to me uh, at 14 was victimized and that person's mother didn't listen to my advice. My advice was to get her off social media. Don't let her look at Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, blah, blah, blah. And this person told me, do you know how many pictures she would lose if I shut her Instagram down? I'm like, who gives a shit about pictures? I'm like, you don't have to forever shut it down, but for right now, shut it down. So she did, but you know what she would do? She would go on Twitter and read to this person what they were saying about her. I'm like, well, that's defeating the whole purpose of what I said. So yeah, and and this person was particularly actually when she was victimized, passed out, so she had no recollection recollection of the assault. So the only thing she was getting was the negative reactions from the people in school and the you know the way her parent was acting
1: i actually had a weird thing with my kids this week like this is obviously nothing to do with sexual assault but the reaction thing like i was i'd read your book last week and you know thinking about my reaction to what happens to my kids my daughter had actually fell off the second step at our home here and i had no reaction to it i just kind of looked at her and she was kind of waiting for me to react like oh are you okay that kind of thing and then I, I just made a joke. I said, hey, were you trying to jump like that's a pool or something? And she just sort of laughed and laughed it off. And then I thought back to last week, something similar had happened. She'd fallen off a chair and she kind of looked at me and I was like, oh my goodness, are you okay? And then that was when she'd started to cry. And it was kind of like my negative reaction to the event was what actually caused her to have sort of a reaction to it. And then the second time, me not doing it had uh, you know she was kind of laughing about it so. but obviously it's not sexual assault but it's it's kind of a similar idea with like a lot of times your parents can sort of make the trauma a little bit worse for you
2: well thankfully yeah. my mother would listen to what Mike Burnett had told her
1: yeah no kidding yeah
0: yeah you refer you refer to that in your book as uh living in a land of giants right where um the kids like depending on how the adults kind of treat their kids if they completely control them it's kind of um instilling those behaviors in the kids like i i need to listen to all uh, authority figures at all times right
2: so the example i think i gave in the book was you know whenever i waited tables and i'd go up to the table and be like hey what, what can i get for you to drink and the parent would look at their kid you know billy what do you want and billy would be like i want a coke and they'd be like well no you, uh, you get him a milk well, then, why did you ask him what he wanted in the first place? So you're right. you're showing him his his opinion. Or here's another one I like: um, "Hey, get up and let uh, Uncle Paul sit down." Well, who the hell is Uncle Paul? You know how is mm-hmm. he any more valuable than a child who's sitting there? So you 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 tell you show you you mimic, not mimic, but you're you're modeling that their opinion doesn't count. Or you know, there. Oh, oh, you know, hug hug Aunt Lucy. What if Aunt Lucy stinks? Don't you yeah. know? Don't don't force your kid to do that. If their kids, if your kid's comfortable, they'll do it. I mean, you're just not modeling good behavior.
0: Yeah. As a parent, I took a lot from that. Like just you know, you you got thinking about yourself and the way that you um, treat your own children, right? And and yeah, I definitely took a lot from that, and and going to be more mindful, I think, of of the ways that I react or ask questions, like you said, make suggestions. No, you drink this it's it's good
1: advice yeah it really is there was a, a line I'm trying to remember exactly what it was where you talked about um no one should want to spend more time with your kids than you do and that's something that's like a big red flag
2: well if someone wants to spend more time with your children than you do then that's not just a red flag that's a red rocket that's a that's a blast um I mean I'm 51 and single and don't get me wrong uh you know I never wanted kids I mean I don't hate kids i wish them the best or i wouldn't have wrote the book you know i mean i don't think kids should suffer any of the trauma that i went through but you know any normal person i think who's single is going to want to go to hooters and not to soccer games i mean i, I you know call me nuts
1: yeah yeah I mean it does it does make sense. Especially a twenty five year old, which was what Jeff was in your case.
0: I noticed like in your book, you were able to recount like a lot of really small like small details. It's like who you saw, the bus you were on, um, where exactly you went. Do you find cause you deal with a lot of trauma victims now, do you find that they're able to recount like you or, or is there situations where they shut that out?
2: Well, no, my memory's like when it comes to like names and stuff like that, it's not good, but um, I'm really good at like eighties music. Uh, like I can tell you the name of the song, I can tell you the artist, and I can tell you the year plus or minus a year. The reason why I do the plus or minus is because let's say the song's released in December of eighty three and it doesn't become number one until April of eighty four. Yeah, I gotta get that little I gotta get that little plus or minus. But it sure. has earned me no money with that worthless knowledge, but no, I just have a really good memory
0: <laughs> when it comes to stuff like that. <laughs> Maybe someday. <laughs>
2: You know, but again, I mean, how hard is it to remember that your hotel room was a block from Disneyland? You know I mean? Right. It was a harbor and could it was almost not on the corner. It was right by the corner. I'll tell you something cool. My niece went there about uh, two months ago. She was at a dance convention in Anaheim. And she went to it's now it was called the Samoa Motel back then, but now it's called America's Best Value. And she went and took pictures, video, and she went to the room. And you can see where I was sitting when the cops were interviewing me. She went to the room where, you know, the cops busted in. So I thought that was good. And she told me, she's like, I kind of got a little emotional because like, I mean, it's like part of the family history, but to actually be there and like, you know, this is where Uncle Jody was when he was rescued. So it was kind of cool that she was able to go see that.
0: Yeah, nice. Yeah, well.
1: Um, you're you've done a lot of advocacy work. We mentioned it, or I mentioned it's a lot of it off of the top. But you also you've traveled around the country um giving like Speeches at uh, college. You've done different trainings, professional engagements, things like that uh, about like risk reduction and also violent violence prevention. Um, That's obviously something that's that's near and dear to your heart. Uh, What what is it that you're doing these days as far as that kind of stuff goes?
2: Well, I spoke at a conference in Richmond, Virginia, back in April, and that went really well. And I tell people all the time, I love traveling, I love speaking to people. The only bad thing about what I do is the topic. You know, I wish I could, you know, be like Zig Ziglar and talk about selling pins. But, you know, um, (laughs) you know, but no, if I'm willing to go and travel anywhere and speak and and share my stories or help raise awareness, um, I don't do it as much as I want to. COVID was a big problem, big part of that, because I was supposed to go to Whistler uh, near Vancouver and speak at a conference up there. But all that got canceled because of COVID. I, I missed a trip to Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Gulf Shores south carolina and british columbia because of covid and whenever you do a speaking engagement you book more from the people see you oh can you come speak with us and so i i'm continually hopingly and hopefully if we get this docuseries done that will just make it more visible to where i can go and share my story to more people
1: i think the world needs to hear it again it's something that unfortunately like it's a timeless story and Hopefully one day it won't be, but, um, you know, you talk a lot about violence prevention. I'm curious, uh, specifically about like the fact that like the video being online, like the video of your dad shooting Jeff and the fact that it's online and you know, you've worked in violence prevention for almost 30 years. What is the feeling of, of having that out there? Cause it, I mean, it is everywhere. I've, I've seen it, you know, in a lot of places online and it's, it's horrific to watch. Um, but what, like, what do you, what do you feel as somebody who works in violence prevention when you see something like that online?
2: Okay. So let's say when I joined Twitter, I think in 2009, if I would search my dad's name, like once every three weeks, his name might pop up where someone mentions him. But thanks to TikTok and Twitter growing. I mean, now I can't go three hours without someone mentioning my dad. And a lot of times on Facebook, you know, weird history will post, uh, the you know, the famous picture of my dad and Jeff, and <clears throat> people will comment and there'll be, you know, 1.2 million views and, you know, a hundred thousand comments. So to me, and very rarely do we get, and, and look, I ain't got a problem with anybody that's like, you know what, vigilante justice isn't the solution because I'm, I'm right there with you. But I appreciate what my dad symbolizes. I think my dad is a symbol of justice. A lot of people think that Jeff would have done a couple of years or a couple of months and got out and would have been victimizing other kids. And my dad stood up to stop that. So I appreciate that people view my father as that. Um, and I appreciate that, you know, 40 years later, it'll be 40 years come March that, you know, people still appreciate my father's actions.
1: Yeah, I talked to, outside of Corey. I talked to three other people uh, that we were going to interview you, and each of them said the exact same thing. A, they knew your story, and B, they said, tell him his dad's a goddamn hero. That was what they said.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, go go, like, go look on my gumbo. I, I've got several gumbo videos on YouTube, and half of the comments are, your dad's an American hero. I wish my dad would have done that to my abuser. So, I mean, he he, he represents, and, and, and abuse is more common than people think when it comes to sexual abuse. And so I think my dad stands as, as, you know, I mean, how many people have said to me, like, I wish my father would have been like your father, you know, would would, would have protected me or done something like that for me. And I'm like, you wish my father was like, better." well, like I said, he was a great father, better than the video shows.
1: Yeah. One thing your dad said after he had shot Jeff, he said you would have done the same thing and like that's what he said to the police mm-hmm. um sorry you're I... No, I would
2: say bud looked at him and he's like you know why in the hell did you have to go and do this or whatever and and you can see it in the video if you go to my website i have the unedited video on my website you can see my dad like he kind of like makes him snap he gets pissed off and he looks up at him and he said if he had done that to your family you'd do the same thing too you don't know yeah and so a lot of people misquote him and say that he said, son, he didn't say if he'd have done that to your son, he said, if he'd have mm. done that to your family.
1: Hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. That's adds a whole other layer to it. But yeah, like I don't, I don't know what my reaction would be, but I don't know that it wouldn't be that for sure. Like I, I have daughters and you know, if something happened to them. I don't know what my reaction would be, but it, who knows? Like, it's a, it's a crazy thing to think about. Um, We'll get to our last question in a sec, Corey, unless you have other ones, but um, there's one line in your book that I, that really resonated with me and you talk about, um, as far as uh, sexual assault victims, that we really shouldn't be using the expression, no means no, when we should be using the expression, yes means yes. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Like I know you do in the book, but just for our audience, so they understand what you mean when you say yes means yes. Okay.
2: So when it comes to like adults, consenting adults, Okay some, let's just use male, female. Cause I mean, that's the minor majority of the relationships, but we know it can go either way. It could be male, male it could be female, female. Um, but like a male doesn't have the right to have a sex, like, like I mentioned in the book, I don't have the right to have sex with the Hooter girls and it's their job to tell me no. all right. In order to have active consent, you know, you don't have to go mad, please rub your leg, you know, but if you start rubbing her leg and she moves her leg, then you might want to, look at that as, okay, maybe she don't want me touching her leg. Um, May I, you know, place my penis in your vagina? You know, that's not the world we live in. But, you know, if someone is passed out, if they're too drunk to consent, like, even if they say yeah, if they're intoxicated, then there is a, a level that they could be that's too drunk to consent if they're passed out. So it's not up to that person not to say no, but it's up to the person... Or it's up to them both saying yes. So that's where I get yes means yes.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a legal. Well, I mean, you think of like a, the legal terms of a contract. You have to have like offer and acceptance in a contract. It's, it's almost the same. Well, I mean, it is basically the same thing with consent. Like somebody offers, somebody has to accept. Otherwise, it's it's not consensual. So, Jody, if, if you were suggesting this podcast, this
0: particular one with you, uh, what would people take from it? All right, so
2: in life, we're going to go through our ups and downs. All right, everyone's going to have them. Uh, Some ups and downs are way different than others. Like, for example, Michael Jackson, I can't go to the grocery store. Well, I can't fly around the world either. So, you know, I I would maybe make that trade, but just because something negative happens to you. And again, um, I can say I think the worst thing that could happen to a human is to lose their child. And I don't have one. That's why I don't have one. Um, But my uncle he lost his daughter when she was two years old but he continued he had more children uh he continued to live his life he lived lived a great life um but as people were resilient and just because you go through something tragic with the proper support and help whether that be your family friends clergy uh professional counselors paid counselors with the proper support you can work through it and you can integrate it into your life so you're not scarred for life you're not damaged goods you know, you can overcome with the proper support. That's
1: such That's a amazing. great message. Well,
2: and, and I end my book with a quote from Hella Keller where she says, the world is full of suffering, but is also full of the overcoming of
1: it. Yeah, it's a very powerful message, very powerful way to end the book. Jody, is there anything uh, you want to plug before we get out of here?
2: Um, the books available on Amazon, it's called why Gary, why it's available on audible as well. If you don't like reading or if you get to take long trips, um, the audible only takes six hours to listen to and it's unabridged. So it's not a long book, but it's packed with a lot of valuable information. So I would recommend going and getting it, especially if you're a parent or a survivor. So I think it's a very good book. It's very educational, especially for parents. And again, I think it's written for survivors, but I also want people who, who've never dealt with this situation to read it and get a better understanding about it, especially about the grooming process and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. I think it's an excellent book for somebody who is a parent who just wants to be hyper aware. And, you know, in the book, you talk about being aware of your surroundings as a parent, I feel very aware of my surroundings after having read the book and, you know, what to look for and things like that. So Jody, this was amazing. Thank you so much for, for being a part of our show. We really appreciate you coming on.
2: I really appreciate you having me on.